Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 15. A uh, couple things I wanted to mention. One, I, I'm, and I'm, I mention it now because I'm going to forget it later. So I'm trusting you people to help me not forget. Uh, but I, I need some folks to be a help to the Colburns. If you don't know, they're, they're sick and laid up. And uh, Brother Chuck has a, a little project around the house that he has to get done before winter sets in. Uh, and so he asked, uh, called on us, see if we get a couple men to come up and be a help to him. So I want you to help me remember because at the end of the service, I'm going to ask for any of the fellows that would be willing to help to come up and let me know. And uh, do remember that we're going to have uh, this uh, Saturday that missions banquet and we're going to have uh, Brother Weber, uh, not this Brother Weber, but the other Brother Weber, the one with one B. Uh, I don't know why we even he's even uh, asking for support. He ought to have all that barbecue grill money, but he... Uh, he's going to Mongolia or has gone to Mongolia. He's going to be preaching for us a little bit next week. So uh, pray for that. Come and be a part of that. And uh, pray for those that are out. Amen. All, the, all these people backslid, Ken. That's what happened. They backslid. They're at, they're at the campground. They're at the beach right now. They're at, at the water park, and they're all backslid. And, and they're, they're going to come back. They're going to lie to us. You know how they do. They'll come back. They'll say, oh, preacher, we went to church while we was out. Bunch of liars. They didn't go to church while they was out. Or they'll say things, they'll, they'll say, well, we had church. They'll say, we, you know, we got together and had church. And a bunch of liars is what they are. They didn't have church. Had church sitting around eating Cheetos is what they did. Had church. And the worst part of all of it is they didn't take us with them. Amen. So you pray for them. We've got folks that are traveling. We're excited to have them back next week. And thank you to our visitors for being here. It's always a blessing and an honor to have you here with us. Second Samuel chapter number 15. In case you're wondering what happened to the series, that allegedly was started a couple weeks ago with the Lord's help. Tonight we'll be back in this very chapter and preaching on a man by the name of Zadok, the high priest, uh, and uh, his life, his testimony, and what he did for the Lord uh, in the absence of his king. How many of you know the king right now is not present right here, but he's coming back? Amen. And so we ought to live in light of it. But I want you to notice a thought with me in 2 Samuel chapter 15 for just a few moments this morning. Beginning in verse number 1. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass after this that Absalom... Now Absalom is the rebellious son of King David. That Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment... Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him, and on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong. 
for the people increase continually with Absalom. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You for this day. Lord, thank You for the move of God we've already felt this morning, the liberty we felt in this service, folks getting help, folks crying out to You. And Lord, I just pray that You would help us to be persistent, determined, Lord, in our prayer life, in in petitioning You, in seeking You, uh, Lord, for our loved ones and for our children, for our grandchildren, Lord, for our family. Lord, I pray that You would help us, that that prayer would move beyond just this altar in this place, but that it would be something that takes up room and residence in our life and permeates our day. That, Lord, we'd be in a spirit and attitude of prayer day in and day out, seeking for You to work in our loved ones' lives. I pray, Lord, not just for that, but I pray for this moment. That, Father, as we approach Your Word, that You would have free course, reign, and liberty to work in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that You would be magnified and that Your will would be accomplished. And we know, Lord, if that takes place, that we'll be served the better for it, Lord. We'll be happier. We'll be holier. We'll be more like Christ, Lord, as we yield unto You. Father, we love You, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me verse number 12. The Bible says at the end of verse 12 about Absalom's plan and about the general movement and moment in the nation of Israel that the conspiracy was strong. The conspiracy was strong. You know, there were, uh, in the days that we're living in, it seems like one of the sort of bywords and buzzwords that is being used uh, all around. You hear it all the time is the word conspiracy. Uh, you hear all the time, anytime someone has a, a, a thought, an idea that uh, maybe out of whatever Overton window society has determined people, that they, they say, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. And, and what they mean by that is to call you a nut job, to call you a, a whack job, say you're off kilter a little bit. I'm all of those things, but not because of that. But they'll say, well, you know, you're a, you're a conspiracy theorist. Now, I don't know if you've had a, a year like I've had. I'm running low on conspiracies. Somebody say amen to that. I used to have a bunch of them. They all came true. Somebody say Amen. I don't know what we're going to do about it. We're worried about a labor shortage. I'm worried about a conspiracy shortage, man. There's all kinds of stuff. There's stuff I believed and I thought, you know, maybe that's a little crazy. And then it turned out it wasn't even crazy enough for the reality of things. Uh, and, And it seems as though we hear this word just being tossed around. Conspiracy, conspiracy. And there is always with it this sort of unspoken, implied tone and 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 tenor as though the notion of a conspiracy is rooted always in paranoia. Can I tell you that while it is true paranoia can uh, birth all kinds of conspiracy theories, there are conspiracies in the world. There are things where there are powers and movements and people that are working in concert with one another to reach a determined, desired goal. And if you need proof of that, you can look no further in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Here in 2 Samuel 15, we find a deliberate, designed conspiracy that was set forth by Absalom, the son of David, to dethrone David from his kingdom, from his authority, and replace him with himself. This met all of the components of what we would consider a conspiracy. For instance, when I think of a conspiracy, and, and I spent some time saying, you know, what is it that makes a conspiracy a conspiracy? Is it just some sort of incredulous theory? Well, no, it's got to have more than that. Is it something that seems outlandish or something uh, that seems over the top? No, not altogether. There's all sorts of things uh, that are outlandish and over the top that we don't call a conspiracy. So what definitionally 
is a conspiracy. If we look at what old Mr. Webster used to say about the word conspiracy, he would say that it is two or more people gathering together for a common purpose, carrying out a design, deliberate plan. And when we look at 2 Samuel 15 and what Absalom did, we find that it exactly meets the criteria of what a conspiracy is. For instance, when I think of a conspiracy, I think, number one, that it has to be a confederacy of people. In other words, one person by themselves is not a conspiracy. It becomes a conspiracy when another person engages with it and joins with it and decides to further that plan. When we read through our text this morning, we find that basically there are three groups of people involved with this conspiracy that Absalom set forth. Number one, there is Absalom himself. I would say this, that Absalom, he is the architect or the father of this conspiracy. This entire plan was concocted in his mind, in his heart. Can I just say to you, anytime there's a conspiracy, there's somebody thought it up. There's somebody developed it. There's some mind behind it. There's some de- driving force, some individual that has designed this conspiracy to accomplish a desired goal. And Absalom, he's the man that is the architect behind this conspiracy. Number two, I see the agitators of this conspiracy. Or we might say they are the faithful involved in this conspiracy. They are described in two ways. In verse number one, we're told about some servants that serve Absalom. The Bible says he prepared him chariots and 50 men to run before him. These are the foot soldiers. These are the men who are tasked with the details of carrying out this conspiracy. They are initiated into the inner workings of this. They are not dull. They are not blind. They are not naive to what is taking place. But they are actively assisting Absalom in his takeover. We could say they are the agitators or the faithful that are involved. And every conspiracy will have somebody that thinks it up and then at least one or more people who say, I believe in this vision, I believe in this idea, I believe in this plan, and I will help carry it out. And then I would say this, when we read through this passage, we see the Israelites are a part of this conspiracy. Now, at first they're not, but they are targeted by Absalom. We could say this, they are the audience of this conspiracy or the followers in this conspiracy. They are the ones that Absalom is targeting. He's trying to turn their heart and their mind and their loyalty. He's trying to change their attitude. And most conspiracies, they'll have a source, someone that thought it up. They'll have individuals that believe in it. But then there'll be the audience or there'll be what some people have called useful idiots. You ever heard that term before? People that don't know no better, but just because humanity can be herded like cattle, they will go in a certain direction. That's what the Israelites were. They were not people that were actively treasonous against David, but they were men that Absalom was able to manipulate, that he understood, that he was able to co-opt and control their natural disposition to use them for his intended goal and purpose. You say, preacher, that's fascinating, that's amazing to see. But what does that have to do with me? Well, I'd remind you that likewise, the Bible tells us about a conspiracy that's at work in the world today. It is described for us in the New Testament as the mystery of iniquity. In other words, there is a satanic conspiracy to undermine the witness of Christ in this world, to undermine the individual soul uh, liberty of the believer, to subjugate mankind away from the authority of Christ and under the authority of Satan and his world system. Now listen, if you're getting ready to roll up a tinfoil hat to put on me, you're welcome to do that. But if I read my Bible correctly, I see that the things transpiring in this world today, they are not by happenstance, they are not by accident, but this world is 
speeding towards an expected end detailed and revealed in the Word of God where this world will act in defiance against God. In other words, it's not by accident. I'm just going to say it again. It's not by accident. The things you see unfolding before you today, they're not by accident. I told my Sunday school class a few years ago, this one, President Trump won uh, the White House. And, and uh, you know, I, the listen, I'm not going to get overtly political today, uh, mainly because I don't overtly like any politicians. But uh, the, the whole conflict that surrounded the election of President Trump and, and, and sort of the, the, the legacy traditional forces in government, it was always described and cast as a difference between globalism and nationalism or globalism and populism. And I remember telling my Sunday school class a few years ago, I said, listen, I I know you don't want to hear what I'm about to tell you, uh, but I'm duty bound to tell you this. And I I know you don't like it, but nationalism doesn't win. Populism doesn't win. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if you believe in it. It doesn't matter if you vote for it. It doesn't matter if you support it. If I read my Bible correctly, we are not moving towards a fragmented world system wherein every nation retains its own autonomy, sovereignty, and identity. Rather, when I read my Bible, we're moving towards a one-world government where everything is brought under the headship and authority of one individual called the man of sin in the Word of God. Now listen, I'm not reading tea leaves, but I am reading these leaves. I am reading my King James Bible. And I understand that everything happening in this world is moving towards that direction. Let me say number two this morning, not only is there a a global or a prophetic uh, conspiracy, but there is also a personal conspiracy in our lives. Satan is trying to dethrone our love of Christ and our relationship to Him. He is actively working. Now you say, well, preacher, I know the devil wants me to quit serving God, but where's the other people? Conspiracy requires more than one, and that's true. In fact, in these three groups of people, we find this unholy trinity. Absalom, he's the father, the architect of this conspiracy, and he reminds us of the devil, the one that actively desires to see the authority of Christ undermined in our life. But I also see these agitators, these servants, these spies, these men that are in common league, the faithful, the believers, the foot soldiers in this conspiracy, and it reminds me of this world system which marches in lockstep with what the devil desires to do. The Bible, in fact, goes so far as to call the devil the God of this world. The world is is securely under his sway and influence at this moment. Now listen, dear child of God, praise the Lord, it's not forever. There's a king coming that's going to break his crown, that's going to take his scepter, that's going to kick his throne over and set up his own throne in his place. But right now, in this day, in this dispensation, Satan, of course, holds almost unchallenged, except for the salt and light that the church is, the devil holds unchallenged authority in this world. But now, you say, preacher, what about those Israelites, the audience, the followers, the sort of witless, unknowing, unwilling participants in this? Well, you know, I'll tell you what that reminds me of. That reminds me of the part of you and I that still lives in defiance and rebellion against God. That part of us that loves the direction that the world would have us to go. That part of us that the world manipulates and uses to herd us under the devil's sheepfold. That is our flesh. It is a part of us. Hey, listen, there were Israelites who wanted and loved King David. But there were some that were willing to listen to Absalom's lies. And it's sort of like your life and mine. There's a part of us, that new man that lives within us, that has no interest in hearing the devil's lies. Uh, It's tasted and seen that the Lord is good and its hope lies only and solely in the Lord. But there's that other part of us, that old nature, that Adamite nature, that flesh that still likes to listen to what the devil has to say. So in other words, it is not too much to say that there is a conspiracy in our lives 
satanically speaking, to drive us away from the throne of Christ and to distract us away from the work of Christ and to dislodge us from our loyalty in Christ. The devil is trying to get us to quit on God. The world is trying to get us to quit on God. And our flesh wants us to quit on God. I see the confederacy of people. Number two, it requires a common purpose. A conspiracy is not a conspiracy unless people are on the same page regarding their ultimate goal. That's why it is a conspiracy. Otherwise, it is just a cabal, just a master plan that may be manipulating, coercing people, but it requires a conspiracy, does people to say, we're trying to achieve the same thing. We see that in this text, don't we? What was their common purpose? Well, the Bible says in verse 6, number 1, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This satanic conspiracy in our lives, Satan desiring to dislodge us from our devotion to Christ. What is he trying to do? Number one, he wants to change our love of the king. That's what they wanted. Absalom said, I don't want him loving David anymore. I want him loving me instead. By the way, it was never, it was never an option to love Absalom and David because there was only room for one on that throne. And in the same respect, God says that you can't serve God and mammon. You can't love God and the flesh. You cannot let the devil have his way and God have his way. A choice, friend, must be made. What's he trying to do? He wants us to not love him the way that we used to love him. He wants to steal our hearts away from God. Number two, I see he wanted to change their loyalty to the king. Down in verse 12, it says this, the people increased continually with Absalom. Now, what does that mean? It means they weren't with David anymore. They was with Absalom now. <laughs> Isn't it good to know when trouble comes, you got people with you? What do we mean when we say that? They support me. They stand with me. Uh, they believe in me. Uh, they're loyal to me. You say, I-, I got people with me. Well, what does it mean when it says they increase continually with Absalom? It means they weren't with David anymore. Now they're with Absalom. So in other words, he don't just want you to quit loving Jesus. He wants you to quit being loyal to Jesus. And let me just say this and I'll move on. Hey, listen, when we don't love Him, we won't be loyal to Him. If He can get us, there's a reason that that Absalom, He didn't just show up and just try to wrestle their allegiance away. He first turned their hearts because He knew that if He could turn their hearts, He could turn their loyalty. If He could take their love, He could take their devotion. And I would say in your life and mine, when we let our love grow cold of Him, it won't be long. We won't be serving Him. We won't be living for Him. I'd say number three, a conspiracy requires a codependent participation. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, a conspiracy is not a conspiracy if people don't end the conspiracy need one another to carry out the purpose. That's the whole reason you bring somebody in to your plan is because you can't accomplish it without them. And can I just say this? I'm glad to report to you today that though the conspiracy is strong, it is fickle nonetheless. Your flesh is going to always be what your flesh is. The world is going to always be what the world is. The devil is always going to do what he desires to do. But did you know this? It don't take much to break that chain. If we'll break uh, one link of that chain, it'll change everything. The devil cannot get an entrance in your life if you get your flesh under control. The devil cannot get an entrance in your life if you refuse to give the world sway and allegiance and right away in your conduct and in your heart. By the same token, the world can try. They can try. But if we determine that in our heart and mind the devil's not going to get any victory in our life, then the world may try. It may apply its pressures, its forces. It may assault us, abuse us, murder us, destroy us. But it cannot force us to bow the knee to them. By the same token, I would say this, that the devil and the world may try as they may. But listen, if we resolve that the new man's going to have victory in our life and not the old man, 
That we're going to walk in the Spirit of God in victory and in liberty and not under the chains and bondage of sin, then try as they may, the devil in the world cannot force us to live a certain way. I'd say this, it is a codependent participation. And then, number four, there is a coordinated plan. A conspiracy is not a conspiracy unless there is a coordinated plan. You say, preacher, what is it if there's not one? A social club. Like, you, you ain't a good conspiracy if you don't have a plan, right? Otherwise, you're just some people hanging out. There has to be a plan in place. In our text, we find there was a plan. There was a plan to destroy the people of Israel, their devotion to King David, to displace King David from the throne. And by the same token, in your life and mine, Satan has a plan to displace us in our walk with Christ, to displace Christ from His proper place of authority in our lives. So here's a question I'd ask for you today. Why was the conspiracy so strong? It's not a debate as to whether there is such a thing as a conspiracy, because the Bible says there was a conspiracy. It's not a question as to whether or not in this case it was really a conspiracy. What's the old saying? Just because uh, just because you think everybody's out to get you don't mean they ain't. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, it's easy. It's a common form of libel today. Anybody doesn't agree with you, say, oh, you're a nut, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're this or that. Didn't come from this approved source or that approved source. We can try that, but hey, God's immutable, infallible word says here in 2 Samuel 15, there was a conspiracy. It did exist. And the Bible says that it was a strong conspiracy. It was not weak. It was effective. It was meaningful. And you can read on in the text and you'll find where it was carried out and where it changed the climate in the land of Israel. It changed who sat on the throne. Why was it so effective? Two reasons, and I'll be done this morning. Number one, the conspiracy was so strong due to the discernment of the conspiracy. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I'd just say this. Absalom played him like a fiddle. He knew people well enough to know how to coerce and manipulate them. The key, and I want to be careful how I say this, But the key to conspiracy and the key to control is not brute force, but it's intuitive coercion and manipulation. Nobody could control everything at once. Absalom, he couldn't control all those people at once, so here's what he had to do. He had to make what he wanted what they wanted. He had to make them do the work for him. And let me say this, the Bible tells us of the devil himself that he's more subtle than any beast of the field. Uh, Listen, the devil, he understands he can't be everywhere at once and he understands that he can't even post and station a demon everywhere that he wants to. But here's what he can do. He can use your flesh against you and get your flesh to do for him what he lacks the ability or the manpower to do himself. How did Absalom do this? Well, I noticed three things. Number one, he appealed to their attitude. Notice what the Bible says in verse number two. The Bible says, And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. Now, notice where Absalom puts himself. He puts himself in the gate of the city. Now, you and I, when we think of the gate of a city, we just think of the door, right? A city has walls around it, and there'd have to be, if anybody was going to get in, there'd have to be a gate to it, there'd have to be a door. But in fact, when we read our Bible, we find that at this time, the gate of the city was commonly viewed as the place of the king's judgment. They would set the throne up in the gate of the city. And if men had cause one against each other, they would come to the gate of the city, they'd expect to find the king there, they could petition the king and ask for the king's justice. 
So Absalom, when he places himself at the gate of the city, he's doing something wise, humanly speaking. He's doing something very subtle, something very sneaky, and something very effective. Here's what he's doing. He's placing himself where all the unhappy people are. If you were coming to the gate of the city, you was coming there because you weren't in a good mood. Go down to the DMV sometime and take a temperature of people's days and of their dispositions. Right? Anytime you've got, I mean, go down, go down to the county courthouse where the speeding tickets are paid and, and just ask people what kind of day they're having. All right? When you set up shop in a place like that, here's what you're doing. You're putting yourself in a place to find those that are disgruntled. I would say it this way. He intercepted the discontent. He put himself in a place to find people that were already unhappy with the king. You know what the devil will do in your life? He'll, he'll come and find you at times when there's something in your life that you're displeased with regarding the Lord. Discontentment is the seedbed for diabolical rebellion. When we get discontent with God, when we get unhappy with God, when we get disgruntled with God, the devil will come up along beside us. He'll just happen to be waiting there, right? Isn't that amazing? Don't you believe in those kind of coincidences? He'll just happen to be waiting there to whisper in your ear about how bad God's been to you lately. It's part of the reason it's so important that we guard our spirit and guard our hearts. Listen, you got a problem with God? What, what does the Bible teach us? If we have a problem with one another, we go to Him and work it out. Why do we think that doesn't apply with God? you got a problem with God, and you get alone with God and talk to God until you and God get it worked out. Because if you let that thing fester, it won't be long. The architect of this conspiracy, the devil himself, will ride up along beside you and say, boy, it's unfair the way God's been treating you. <laughs> boy, ain't it awful serving God? And your flesh will listen to that because it's already unhappy with the Lord. Can I tell you something? The flesh ain't never happy with God. Any time that you are enjoying joy in the Lord, it's because your flesh is being disregarded and, and dismissed in your mind and in your heart. It's because you're resisting the flesh, not because you're listening to the flesh. So anytime you listen to the flesh, it's always going to have a complaint about God. He intercepted the discontent. Number two, look at verse three. The Bible says this, that Absalom said unto him, and this is sort of a theoretical, it's a hypothetical conversation. He'd say unto him, see thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Not only did he appeal to their attitude, but he appealed to their arrogance. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, he indulged their criticism. He said, you know, the problem ain't you. The problem is King David. The problem is not with your life, with your heart. The problem is not with your choices. The problem is with King David. He says, see, thy matters are good and right. He says, you know, after all, you're right in coming here and your cause is just. And the problem here is that the king is not taking up your cause. Hey, listen, that's already naturally our attitude towards the Lord. Every person, I've always chuckled at this. I've had people say this to me. I've heard it said to other people. They'll say things like, you think you're always right all the time. And my answer, and it never seems to make the situation better. I don't know why, but my answer is always, duh. Like, how dumb would it be to know you're wrong and persist in that error? Everybody thinks they're wrong all the time. Humility is not found in some kind of feigning of, uh, of, of, you know, always being incorrect. It's not, it's not some kind of, of groveling self-deprecation. That's not humility. Humility is in the acknowledgement that we are not infallible. So it's not saying, oh, I'm wrong all the time. It's saying, no, I think I'm right, but I acknowledge there's a possibility I could be wrong about something. Now, by the way, let me say this, that don't apply to biblical standards and truths. You know why? Because we're not taking up our position, we're taking up God's position when we stand on the Word of God. 
But I'm saying people will say, you know, well, you think you're right. Well, duh, everybody thinks they're right all the time. And everybody, when something goes wrong in their life, they immediately feel aggrieved and they will immediately, their flesh will begin to slander God. You know what the devil does? He comes along and he says, boy, you sure are right. He appealed to their all, already misguided and corrupt sense of self-rightness and righteousness. Hey, listen, you want to know when somebody's telling the truth? When it hurts. You want to know when somebody loves you? When they'll tell you something that you don't want to hear, but that you need to hear. And God loves us enough. Hey, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When God will speak to us hard truths that we don't want to hear, it's because He loves us. But you know what the devil do? He'll come and tell us pretty lies. Soothing lies. Things that make us feel better. Things that make us feel righteous and just and make us feel as though our being aggrieved is somehow Correct. Man, he knew. He knew how to play him. He knew all you had to do was come along and tell them that they were right and that their problems were not their problems. It was everyone else's problem. And he'll come along and he'll say, uh, your problems in your life, they're not your fault. They're not your problem. It's just God ain't being fair to you. God ain't being good to you. He's good to all these other people, but he ain't good to you. Let me tell you, the devil's a liar from the beginning. God has never been anything but good to us. But the devil understands. He understands how to manipulate. There was great discernment. Not only that, look at verse 5. The Bible says it was so that when any man came nigh to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here's what would happen. They'd come to him and Absalom's supposed to be a representative of the king. And so the appropriate thing in decorum and in integrity and honor in that day would have been for them to bow and him as the representative of the king for them to kiss his ring because not because of who Absalom is, but because of who the king is. Here's what Absalom would do. They'd bend down and go to bow and kiss the ring and he'd grab him by the hand and he'd say, oh brother, you stand up here. Don't you do that. Hey, listen, we're just equals after all. He'd grab them and he'd kiss them and he'd hug them and he'd say, don't you worry about that. Who do you, hey, listen, you don't have to bow before nobody. You, you don't have to do that. Hey, listen, me and you, we are equals. Listen, I don't want to be an equal with the devil. I've read how his story ends. You know what he did? He appealed to their appetite. He uh, indulged their criticism. He intercepted the discontent, but then he inflated their ego. He came and told them how wonderful they are, how good they were, how none of their problems was their problems. It was all just God being unfair to them. And they just needed to listen to him because if they let him be judged, he would set everything right in their life. And you know what happened? They ate that up. You know why? Because your flesh eats that up. Uh, the devil, he doesn't have to station somebody at your front door. He can just uh, he can just pluck on the strings of your flesh, of your heart, and get your flesh to do his work for him. Why was it so strong? Well, because of the discernment of it, but number two, because of the deception of it. Notice what he did. He, he was markedly deceptive in how he carried out this plan, and he had to be. A conspiracy is generally of no use if it is not kept secretive. It is secretive by nature. Sort of makes you think that part of the strategy of the conspiracy would be casting all those that identify it as being nut jobs in the first place, right? Because the whole integrity of it rests on keeping it secret in the first place. And so he had to keep this secret somehow. Well, how did he do that? Well, notice there's three things that he deceived concerning. Look at verse 7. The Bible says this. It came to pass after 40 years 
that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now listen carefully. There's a very simple reason why Absalom did this. Absalom wanted this to seem like a grassroots movement. He didn't want to be in Jerusalem when this happened. He wanted to be in Hebron. That way everybody would say, Well, this wasn't Absalom did it. We all just woke up one day and just collectively decided. David's been king for 40 years, but we just decided instead we're going to make Absalom king, right? That's what he wanted the impression to be, as though people just spontaneously decided that this was right and correct all of a sudden. But let me say this. When we get to the deeper, deeper meaning here, I notice, number one, he disguised his true intentions. He couldn't tell them while he was going to Hebron. He couldn't tell them why he was doing what he was doing, because if they knew, they would have never allowed it. I'm just going to say that again. He couldn't tell them the truth about what he was doing because if he had told them the truth, they would have never allowed it. Most of the time, if the devil kicked in your front door and said, hey, uh, I'm here to wreck your life, you'd kick him right back out. Instead, he shows up and makes you think, hey, I'm just trying to let you be your best you. You just go live life. You go do your thing. Uh, you just be, you know, you, you do whatever you think is best. You know why? He wants he wants culpable deniability. He wants to be able to say, I didn't mess your life up. You messed your life up. And so he will mask his true intentions in your life. Understand, it don't matter what the devil tells you. He wants you wrecked. It doesn't matter what he tells you. He wants you wrecked. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. It wants you wrecked. Now, you say, well, preacher, they, they, they say they want me to be happy and to be wealthy and to have friends and have this and that. Yeah, but understand that even if you achieve what they want, but you do it without Christ, you'll still be wrecked. And the devil understands that and still wants to see you wrecked. And let me say this, your flesh, it may be the least culpable in the whole conspiracy, but it still desires to see your life degraded and corrupted and living not walking in light, but rather living and walking in darkness. He masked his true intentions. Then he did something else interesting. Look down at verse number 10. The Bible says, But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebrew. This is interesting. The trumpet had a uh, variety of meanings in Israel's life. They'd blow it various uh, times and various uh, amounts of, 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 of alarms that they would sound for various reasons. Sometimes it would mean the camp was moving. Of course, that left, it, it lost that meaning once they settled permanently in Jerusalem. They'd blow it when they were going forth to war. They'd blow the trumpet when the king was entering in. But here's what Absalom does. He don't change the trumpet. Instead, he changes their understanding of the meaning of the trumpet. So that when they hear it, you know what it does to them? It gives an uncertain sound. I'd say this. Number one, he disguised his true intentions. Number two, he confused the trumpet's interpretation. So that though they were hearing the same trumpet they'd always heard, in their mind, they were hearing a different message being communicated by it. Did you know that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses this same language about trumpets and uncertain sounds? Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 6. He says, now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. Now, let me go ahead and give you a clear New Testament exposition. When he says tongues, he don't mean gibberish. Because nowhere in the Bible does tongues ever mean gibberish. 
Uh, the, the dialectos is the word that is typically used there, but I don't even have to be a Greek scholar, and it's a good thing because I ain't, to tell you this, that the context always reveals to us that it's always denoting a known language. It's never talking about gibberish. And people say, well, preacher, what about Pentecost? I'd say this, Pentecost is the weakest example that the charismatic could give for the tongue-talking movement because at Pentecost, they didn't even speak in tongues. Every man heard in his own tongue. Uh, so not only were they speaking in a known language, but it was being heard in a known language at Pentecost. So when he's talking about speaking in tongues, he's not talking about gibberish. And that's the reason that he says, if I speak to you, it's not going to profit you unless I speak by prophecy or doctrine or by revelation. He's saying this, if I'm going to say something, I need to be saying something that is number one, discernible, and number two, understandable on your part. He's saying, I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to get up and just speak. I mean, Paul was an educated man. He could speak, we know, at least five or six different languages and probably more as evidenced by his life. And he's saying, you know, I could get up and rattle something off in Portuguese and that might be real impressive, but it won't help nobody. He says, instead, what I ought to be doing is preaching the Word of God in a way that you can understand. So in other words, he's talking about the preaching of the Word of God here when he talks about trumpets. And notice what he says about it. He says, even things without light giving sound, whether pipe or heart, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or heart? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? Paul using, and by the way, let me just set Paul to the side for a moment. The Holy Ghost in using language concerning trumpets and voices and sounds and messages, he likens the certain sound of a trumpet to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Now, let's think about what Absalom did. He said, you can still have your trumpet, but I'm going to change your understanding of what the trumpet is. Uh, in other words, in your life and mine, here's what he does. He disrupts and disjoins our relationship with the Word of God. He don't mind you having a Bible as long as you don't read it and you don't understand it. It doesn't bother him. I mean, he's not, he's not offended by it just sitting collecting dust on your coffee table. That doesn't bother him. Instead, here's what he does. He don't want you reading it. He don't want you understanding what it says. And you say, well, preacher, some people read it. Yeah, and some people read it, and then somebody takes it and twists it and manipulates it to say something that it does not say. And they're still hearing the same sound, but they're not getting the same message. They'll try to destroy and disrupt your relationship with the Word of God. Listen, he has to do that. You know why? Because every time that trumpet would have sounded, had he not said that, they would have been reminded that David is king in Israel. And you know what happens? Listen, oh my, every time that the trumpet is sounded, we're reminded that Jesus is king in this heart, that he's king in this universe, that he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. See, he can't take the throne as long as you keep hearing the trumpet and blowing the trumpet and listening to the trumpet. So he's got to do something about that trumpet. He confused the trumpet's interpretation. And finally, and I'm done, look at verse 11. The Bible says, And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity. And they knew not anything. Not only did he disguise his true intentions and confuse the trumpet's interpretation, but he exploited their total ignorance. He found a group of people that were clueless and used that cluelessness to his benefit. Now I want you to listen very carefully. An application could be made about understanding the truth of the Word of God. But here's what they didn't understand. They didn't know what plan was being carried out. They were an active part of it but they had no clue about it. Did you know that you don't have to sign up to be a part of the plan? To be a part of a conspiracy? You don't have to ever say, hey, I believe in this cause. I'm a part of this. I agree with this. I'm engaging with this. Sign, sign me up. Station me somewhere. 
There are multitudes in every conspiracy of witless participants that are co-opted, that are controlled, that are used, coerced and manipulated to herd humanity in a given direction. Did you know in your life, hey, listen, the more ignorant we are of what the plan of the enemy is, the more likely that we are just going to float along the path and be used for his purposes. Let me just read a few verses to you and I'll be done. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul encouraging us to encourage one another. He says, well, to do it, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, right? So he's divisive, and not divisive as in separating, but divisive as in he has devices. He has deliberate designed plans in what he's doing. He has wiles. He is somebody, you remember what, Wiley Coyote, right? Uh, Wiley, someone that, that is secretive and subtle and deceptive. And then listen to what he says in verse number uh, uh, 11, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians eleven three. Paul says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So here's what, here's what the Holy Ghost warns us against. The devices, the wiles, and the subtlety of Satan. He says, you need to wake up and realize that there is a plan afoot. You need to wake up and realize that these things are not by accident. They are deliberate. They are designed. The longer that we retain willful ignorance about these things, the easier we make ourselves targets and prey to the predations of the devil in our life. That's the reason Peter encourages us this way in 1 Peter 5. You can quote it, I'd say. He says this, be sober. Be sober means to wake up. Be sober, wake up! He says be vigilant. means pay attention. Pay attention. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Listen, all the devil needs us to do is go to sleep. Preacher preached on it on on uh, Tuesday night and, and, and Jonah's life. All he needs is for us to just go to sleep, spiritually speaking. That's all he needs. He doesn't need us to sign up and carry the banner. All he needs us to do is look the other way and he'll get control over our life. Don't allow, hey, listen, we ought to wake up and, and pay attention and be wise and be smart and be discerning about what the devil's trying to do in our lives because this conspiracy is strong. It's strong. It's stronger than you or I. It's not stronger than the true king. Ultimately, David overcame. But not before the throne was first wrestled away. That tells me this. The king's stronger than the conspiracy, but the subjects aren't. We need to recognize the danger of these things because this conspiracy is strong and we don't need to let it have any sway in our life. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. Father, I love you. I thank you for the truth of your word. May Christ be magnified. May your way and your will be accomplished in our lives this morning. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name.